Welcome to Health Tech Hustle. We exist to share stories of the brave entrepreneurs helping to solve the most important problems in digital health today. We interview top leaders in health tech and bring them onto our show each week to listen and learn from their story with your host, Rodney Hu, founder of 209 Digital. Hello and welcome to another episode of Health Tech Hustle. Today I'm joined with another very special guest, uh, Mr. Chris Ramadurai. He is the Senior Associate at the Noya Fund, a multi-published author, a business and science thought leader, professional brainstormer. And so with that being said, Chris, just want to welcome you onto the podcast. Appreciate that, Rodney. And much love to you and uh, all the uh, fellow listeners. And thanks so much for having me on. Awesome. So yeah, why don't we just jump into why don't you give people a background of who exactly you are and what you do at the Noya Fund? I know we had Max on here a couple weeks ago and kind of shared his role and what he's doing. So kind of learn more about you today. Yeah, for sure. Appreciate it. Max says hi. And uh, yeah, a little uh, background on me, I guess. Uh, I'm just a super nerd, pretty much when I'm not wearing Tony Stark t-shirts or hanging out with my puppy. I'm doing cool stuff in science. I was originally a uh, academic researcher at Harvard and MIT. I was there for quite a bit, a couple of years while I was doing my master's. And uh, yeah, I was fortunate enough to work at some really awesome think tanks. I liked kind of have a, this thing where I like to think out of the box all the time and I can't do, for some reason I can't get my mind to like turn off. So whenever I just see cool stuff, I'm just like, let's just figure this out, man, and do something. So um, yeah, so I was at the, the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs and the, the Talbin Center for State and Local Government at Harvard Kennedy School. And both those institutions work on solving the biggest problems on planet Earth. And I was like, sign me up. Let's do this stuff. Of course, the pay sucked, but you know the experiences were awesome. I was fortunate enough to work with so many awesome uh, world leaders, including um, uh, Ban Ki-moon, UN Undersecretary General, and uh, Ash Carter, the U.S. Secretary of Defense under Obama. And uh, we just did some, some cool awesome stuff with regards to applications of science and technology to improving uh, healthcare for refugees, to improving, you know, biological outcomes and preservation in sub-Saharan Africa, to doing biomedical device development and deployment for Syrian refugees. So it's like, it's like cool, crazy, nutso stuff that like, you know, a kid from the South side of Chicago, you know, growing up would never, you'd never really think to do that, you know, because a lot of people I hung out and grew up with, they didn't go to college. So I was like, man, you know, this is nuts out stuff. So, but yeah, um, I was blessed to work at both institutions and work with some awesome agencies like the UN, the Vatican and USAID. And yeah, I got to uh, publish a couple books that I was really stoked about. As you know, academia is just so much bureaucracy and stuff like that. So um, being able to publish a book without a PhD just it was kind of something that I'd always wanted to do. And I remember going to Barnes and Noble as a kid being like, man, this, these guys are killing it. And why can't I do some cool stuff and uh, get on it? So yeah, fortunate enough to yeah, publish a couple of books that really at the end of the day were meant to be able to be read. And then somebody, a practitioner in the field, whether it be in the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America, be able to be like, okay, I can actually do this stuff in real life. If I'm a physician, I can actually 3D print surgical instruments based on the, the stuff in this book. Or if I'm trying to improve maternal fetal outcomes in sub-Saharan Africa, just follow, read the chapters. And nice. yeah, you know, and uh, so yes, it's super cool. And um, my formal academic background, it's kind of just weird. I like putting business and science together. 
just because the business people honestly suck at science stuff and the science people really kind of are not too jivey with the business stuff. So you kind of bridge that gap for them. Yeah, for sure. It's funny how like, you know, physicians are terrible investors, right? And then business people like can't read a science paper for their life. So I, I did my MBA and I did my master's in biology and I did my undergrad in biology and economics just to kind of put these two fields that don't really talk together. It's kind of like the, the, the left and right, you know, lobes your brain. I kind of want to disconnect them and synergize them because I feel like not a lot of people are speaking both lingos, which is like totally needed. So sorry, that was super long. <laughs> no, you're good. We got, people got to know who you are, man. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So what I got from that is that you're a super thinker. You understand how to solve problems and when people are coming to an investment fund, such as the one you work for, you're the kind of person who they want to work with, right? Because you're able to fill in the missing gaps, like you said, whether you're working with a more business-focused personnel type of person, you're bridging the knowledge gaps with the healthcare or the technology. And that's kind of where you come in? You're absolutely right. So my job at Noya Fund as a senior associate is pretty much just to like separate scientific facts from fiction and validate things. So Noya Fund, when they brought me on the team about six months ago, we were able to really utilize my background to really sharpen our investment thesis in the life sciences, biotechnology, and healthcare. It's one of those awesome fields where the impact is inherent with that, right? You know, as you know, with your background too, you know, you've worked in healthcare and you can see it. Like when you're, healthcare is one of those beautiful things where First of all, it's not going anywhere, right? It'll be there forever. It's not one of those, like, it's not like, uh, you know, Bitcoin or something like that, where it gets hyped up and then it disappears, right? It's not going anywhere. And unfortunately, the inefficiencies and things like that are directly correlated with patient outcomes, right? If a hospital, you know, centralized system sucks for doing patient entry and diagnoses and things like that, these are systems that can be optimized to improve patient quality of life at the end of the day um, and ultimately save lives. So it's a really cool industry that, and just market structure where even if the fund's thesis at the end of the day is not impact driven, it doesn't matter. You're still impacting somebody's life at the end of the day. And for us at Noya Fund, we really take the, the science driven approach to looking at the intersection of deep technology and life sciences, healthcare, and biotechnology. Just because like, I feel like, you know, deep tech is one of those words where it's just like hyper ambiguous. It's like the word innovation, right? When somebody says, I'm doing something cutting edge innovation, I'll be like, all right, what are we talking here? Yeah, exactly. I'll be like, what what are we talking about here, boss man? Because like innovation is just so ambiguous, you know, and deep tech is the same thing. It's like, what is deep tech? It's like characterizes any breakthrough, you know, designation in in science or, or engineering which is great. But for us at the fund, when we're investing in something, right, we have that fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. But at the end of the day, we're humans that, um, that ultimately want to make some kind of functional impact on humanity. So trying to bridge that gap of investors saying that, obviously, if we're going to invest in you, we want to get some money back. But ultimately, too, we want to balance that with, we just have this drive to like help humanity out and improve lives at the end of the day. So Finding that gap and putting them together, the intersection of deep tech and life sciences, biotech and healthcare is this really cool synergy where like you look at computational biology and stuff like that, it's exploding um, in, in drug discovery, drug development. And it's really one of those cool hotbeds where 
you get to play on both sides. You can tell investors, hey, you know, this is a great area to invest in. But then for the super freaky science nerds like me, I get to see at the end of the day, we're funding stuff that's just like awesome, like Jurassic Park style awesome, you know, that's going to do crazy stuff. Minus the carnivores, they should have only bred herbivores. Everybody knows that. They wouldn't have that problem, but, you know. Yeah, common knowledge. <laughs> exactly. So I, I like something that you had mentioned um, regarding health tech, that it's it's not an industry that's going anywhere, or, I mean, healthcare. But then when you mix health tech, you have an industry that's very stable. It's not going anywhere, mixed with another industry that's constantly advancing. And so I think there's so much opportunity and room for improvement and room for growth. And I think that's why you, as a super nerd and brainstorming type of person who's a problem solver, that's why you're valuable. And um, I wanted to kind of ask you, like you're working with all these different startups, people are coming to you for help, for advice, or even for resources. Is there a common problem that you see in the industry or even just a common problem that you see with startups? For sure. Absolutely. You know, those are, those are excellent points, Rodney. I think like, I think the biggest thing is just like, I think when it comes to the science community, they're really passionate about what they do. You meet a scientist in real life and they're, you know, they're in the lab 24 seven, just, you know, going full, full tilt on trying to make their whatever, what lab experiments or whatever technology they're developing work. But I feel like a lot of times they get they get so into it, so pigeonholed that they forget how to communicate that to investors. So it's really difficult because a lot of investors, like I said, they're a little bit savvy on like current market things, market dynamics, what's hot in the tech space and blah, blah, blah. But like when it comes to like computational metabolomics or genomics, they're probably not going to be a subject matter on it. And if you're a scientist that has this like breakthrough idea, right? And you're like, this is nuts though. This is going to change lives, right? But you can't translate that to an investor to understand like at the end of the day, in one sentence, what does this technology do or idea do? And it's really difficult to get traction with like VCs. And you'll have some VCs that just love the idea and they'll just, they'll invest in you. But what I like to invest in and what we like to invest in are sustainable startups. They're startups where we know the idea is great. They have a killer team, but also the components of, can you get IP on the idea? You know, can you lock it down? Do you have that unfair competitive advantage that's sustainable, right? It's not something that's a fad kind of idea and then you scale and then you just get knocked out because nobody wants it. And I think the science founders really kind of struggle in conveying that. And that's why we really rely on our, our accelerator and startup network to make sure that the scientists that go through those programs like Y Combinator or Stardux or Harvard Innovation Lab have the toolkits that make it really easy so that when we kind of are the first check in on them and they do their, their bigger raises because biotech healthcare, they're huge raises, they're huge rounds. That's also why getting the second part, why investors are kind of scared sometimes because like a biotech round, like a series A is going to be 15, $25 million, which for like an enterprise SaaS company, normally they're like three to 5 million bucks. So you're doing these massive rounds and this series B is like $40 million raise, you know, and the company has this long term of growth. You have to really understand the fundamentals and the business people are just looking at it from a side of, like VCs, can I exit, right? In therapeutics, as you probably know, like a lot of people get scared of therapeutics, right? Because it's like a 10 plus year investment horizon, right? You, you'll invest in that company when they start up. 
you might be lucky to get liquidity in that investment in 10 to 15 years. And in VCs, our benchmark is it's a 10-year fund life, right? We've got 10 years to, to exit on all the uh, investments in our portfolio. And we have, we're looking for a benchmark of 10x. That's also for us at Noya Fund. We're looking for 10 times the return on every investment we make. Nice. Exactly. But that takes a hell of a lot of work, though, to do. So that's where we have to really understand the technical aspects of these companies, but also what can we as investors do, right? I hate when people just write checks, right? Just because it's a cool idea, but they don't help the founder, right? The founder is, it's a startup, right? Everybody, you got to share the love and help them out. You can't just be like, here's a check for a million dollars, figure it out, right? A lot of founders now, especially in science, are are really starting to get picky, which I think is great. Looking for strategic investors, right? Who's going to help you out, right? Because it's such a complicated process, right? Say if you're doing a therapeutic, you know, small molecule treatment, you have to get the IP on that. So you need an IP lawyer for small and organic molecule. Then you have to go to preclinical IMD trials. And then you have to have an FDA expert take you through phase one, phase one B, phase two, phase three, do an IPO designation or M&A exit. And you have all this crazy stuff and you need, the founder needs to know like, hey guys, first, do you know what the heck you're doing? And second, can you hook us up like with other people that are experts in this area? Because this, at the end of the day, the science doesn't have, it's useless if it doesn't get to the people it's supposed to help. And, and that's something that I think a lot of business people kind of freak out about is that I don't understand the area enough, but I also don't understand how I can help. And so it's, it's kind of that, that catch 22. Sorry, that was long again. <laughs> no, you're good, man. I'm soaking up this knowledge. I know a lot of other people who are listening to this will appreciate all these knowledge bombs that you're dropping right now. But one thing that kind of stuck out to me, what you're saying is that you have these scientists um, and you have these business people, businessmen who are having trouble communicating the value to investors. And so what I get from that is that there's a knowledge gap and or the, the knowledge curse really is that they're describing things at a level 10 where investors may only understand at a level two. And you come in and say, hey, how can we kind of meet them somewhere in the middle or even not dumb it down, but put the content out there in a way that's digestible for them. And that's kind of where you come in, correct? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, for a lot of people tuning in, you have... VC and venture capital, and then you have PE, which is private equity, right? And I think a lot of times people get kind of confused to like, what exactly do VCs like do, you know, and kind of like, what are they like, what's the whole point of them? So VCs at the end of the day, you know, we're investing early stage pre-seed, seed, series A companies. These are companies that come from an idea to what's called an MVP, a minimally, a minimally viable product, right? Which is just something like you can hold in your hand or you can see, right? And we have to we have to help them through that entire trajectory because private equity is typically a like growth stage it's later on um, in the investment process when that company gets its bearings. And for us in VC, we don't do, we're not suit and tie guys that are doing like crazy Excel based models or anything. We're the exact opposite. We're more like the, the Tony Stark, Jeff Goldblum kind of like people that are like just cruising around in V-necks and board shorts looking for cool stuff but because we understand that it's not as much as the financial modeling and projections. Yes, we want that 10x multiple, right, on that X. We want to make sure the company has that, that minimally viable product and all that fun business stuff. 
but we're also investing in the founders. So half of VC is great. You did all that crazy stuff. Like for me, when I'm going through every investment, I have a 150 point checklist that every company that I have, uh, that I look at goes through. I look at, I looked at 1,750 companies in the last six months. So each, yeah, it's, it's super freak, you know, like every, every week I'm doing 150, 200 companies. That's what I'm doing for 70, 80 hours a week is just going through all these companies, looking at all the science, looking at the teams. And that's the biggest thing is you're at the end of the day, you're investing in the people as much as the idea, because the idea ultimately came from the person, right? And we look for in all of our founder companies that we have in our portfolio, they're just kick-ass founders. These are awesome people. Like you get amped, you talk to them on the phone, they're, they're ready to talk to you for four hours. And you're like, we can only talk for four minutes, but I appreciate this. And they're like, they know the science, they understand the market, but they also understand like communication. Like for us, at the end of the day, we just love to be transparent. We want to help our founders as much as possible. So like even during COVID and stuff like that, we love to be able to send an email out and be like, hey, what's going on? Or text them and literally get a response in like 90 seconds. Nice. That makes our life so much easier because in, in venture capital, the less you hear back from a founder, the more inclined there are going to be problems. And if they do hit a problem or a pickle, it's very difficult to adapt and react to that as opposed to just preventing it through open communication. So our, our founder teams are just killer in the fact that, yeah, they're super freak nerds at the end of the day, but they're also the ability to just really communicate and tell us what's up, give us the full color, what are you struggling with, what can we help you? And that is something that I think a lot of investors totally forget about at the end of the day, that behind the, that check that you put in, you're investing in the person. and for them to, we look at not only how quickly they get back on emails, but like, do we just jive with them? Do we just vibe with them? Like in two seconds, I could know, like there's nothing worse, I think, for VC than investing in somebody that's a terrible person, but has a great idea. Because you know how much that idea has potential, but the person behind it just sucks. So if we can bridge the gap and find both of them, that's awesome. So that's why out of that 1,750 deals I looked at, we only picked three companies for that yeah. reason. So what I get from that is that relationships are key. Relationships are big, especially in the eyes of investors. And then just to clarify, you guys are VCs, right? Not private equity. Yeah, we're VC. So we do pre-seed, seed, and series A investments. Awesome. So it's interesting to hear your perspective because I have a lot of founders and a lot of tech guys, a lot of healthcare guys come on and they kind of share their story and their journey from growing a company. But a problem that has been mentioned multiple times on previous episodes is the fact that people did not have the experience raising money or like they know how to communicate to their customers or they know how to communicate their product to the market. But like you're saying, they don't know how to communicate it in a way that can get them more money. And so everything that you're saying right now, I think will be very valuable to all the founders and entrepreneurs listening on what they should expect. Cause like you said, you look at over 1700, companies in the past however many months you, you mentioned and you only pick three and so you have a big checklist you have a, big, a lot of things you have to look at and so I think um, just listening to your insights will definitely help them for sure yeah I think a question I had is other than just that that checklist and knowing who the founders are and having that relationship what else goes into I guess separating the good companies versus the bad companies not bad but like the companies you'd want to work with, per se. 
at the end of the day, we have a diligence, it's called a diligence pipeline, basically. I call it like the, it's basically the electric slide for, for companies um, that we have. And a company will come to us, whether it's from our network or we find them on PitchBook or all the cool databases and toys that we have. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it, it gets put in our pipeline. And then I'll be like, oh, cool, this is, this is this, this company. And then I check. The biggest thing is, you know, I have to check to see, A, is it aligned with our investment objectives, right? You know, since we do artificial intelligence, biotechnology, healthcare, and life sciences, first of all, you know, if, if we're getting, you know, uh, an investment from a car company or something like that, probably not going to jive with us, no matter how good of an investment is, right? Like, even if it was Tesla, we'd still be like, it's not aligned. But, you know, I would still want to see what Elon Musk's email would be like in that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, you know, and then the, the second thing is looking for the basic fundamentals, right? I think uh, for the people that are listening in, I really want to kind of give them the internal clockwork of how VC worked. So after we look for, does it align with our investment objectives, then we're going to go put it in our initial diligence assessment, which is basically we're looking for the structure of the company, right? And what I first look at is, are there full-time employees at this company? So for any startup, it is absolutely critical. I know that there's a lot of academic spinouts where you have a professor that's full-time at the university, doesn't have full-time in the company. And if you want to raise capital, every VC is going to ask you, are there full-time people employed in this, right? Because that means you're ride or die in this, right? Because if this doesn't work out, you're out of a job. And that's, unfortunately, at the end of the day, they want to see that because that just shows commitment right off the bat. And the number one thing for me, looking at people is great. And when you're a full-time employee, you're, you're showing me, all right, you believe in this company and you're going to have some grit to make this work out ultimately. So we look for that. And then once we see they have, we have full-time founders, we just check out the backgrounds of the founders. Is the product that they're developing kind of aligned with their background? And, and it doesn't have to be 100%. Sometimes, there's, you know, you have people that do these crazy pivots. But we just try to understand why did you come up with this idea? What was the impetus for it? Because that also, when you're doing a raise, right, that kind of, that flows in your story, right? If you have some crazy situation where you're doing an oncology startup, it's because, you know, somebody you knew died of cancer, then we understand this is why you're doing it. And that even ties in further to it. And then look for the business fundamentals, right? Do you have a minimally viable product? Do you have a go-to-market strategy, right? After you got that product, do people want it? That's also the other thing. Entrepreneurs forget yeah, you got this cool idea, but is anybody willing to pay for it? Because it's very difficult too for entrepreneurs to realize, damn, like nobody, nobody wants this. Like I got to go back to the drawing board. And then, you know, after that, we go into a more in-depth thing where we're looking at, okay, what's the benchmarks for financial stuff? Like annual returning revenue, right? Most VCs and investors, we like to see 100K. Are you making 100K a year? Because that tells us, all right, now you got that product market fit, you got some cash in the bank. And that helps with the team morale too, because that means that, all right, we've got some cash in the bank, people are getting paid, we're, we're rocking and rolling. And then after that, we move it to our intermediate stage where we're looking at, okay, cool, um, what's the unfair competitive advantage of this idea, right? What, like, everybody else is doing something, right? But what's the secret sauce behind these guys? And we, that's where we get in the intellectual property, make sure it's all secured and stuff like that. And then we go to, after that, we do an interview with them. Uh, the company will be like, hey, we like what we saw, We'll do in a founder interview. And that's where that qualitative stuff, like I told you about, you know, their responsiveness in emails, their composure when we're asking them questions. We like a deck. We like, you know, we like to get a pitch deck that we don't have to sign an NDA for. 
And then we, we just jive for 30 minutes and then we pass it on to the next step, which is we do an investor reference check. For us, we're follow-on investors, which means that a lead investor, somebody has already invested like as a lead investor and put a lot of capital into them and diligence themselves, which means it's de-risked for us automatically. So we'll look for in our companies, we'll do an investor reference check. Just ask them like, how's it been with them? Have they responded to your emails? Has everything been good? Is there any like huge red flags that they didn't tell us in the pitch? And then, then after that, we put them in final stage, which is our advanced diligence process, which is where we go through that 150 point checklist, like I told you of, here's all the, the gabagool in here and all this crazy stuff. Is this all checked up? And then we have a threshold that has to meet 80% of the stuff on the checklist. And then we say, hey guys, we're ready to rock and roll. Give us the term sheet. And then that's it. And then we just help them. So so yeah, that's it. Um, that's it in a nutshell. So I, I tried to put that as much compact for you because I know you've got other things to do. So like, uh, that's but, yeah, that's all <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like I said, that's definitely helpful. What's like the time frame that all of that happens in? Or is it kind of just dependent on the how fast they get back to you and stuff like that? This is the question that I think a lot of founders would appreciate because a lot of times they're like, what happens after my company is received by VC? So it goes through that process, like I told you, and then comes like, it's basically like almost like a wall of death afterwards where they're kind of like, all right, I haven't heard back. And we're getting, you know, I, I think also founders tend to not realize that we get like 100 to 150 companies a week. So we can't, we don't have enough time to individually respond to each company and say, this is why we passed on you or this is what we're doing. We only reach out to the companies that we're looking to go forward with just for the sake of time, because we're only, we're only a five person team. And like, I can only answer so many emails. And, and I think just for the sake of time and everything, we optimize it in that way. Would I love to get back to every single person? Of course, because every single person's a human, they deserve to get responded back to. But like, if it's some kind of idea that's super nuts, so like, I mean, it's just an obvious pass. It, we don't want to be like, we just passed on this idea because it's crazy. <laughs> you know, we just be like, it didn't align with our investment objectives and we move on. But yeah, and in that phase, that's where I think a lot of founders ask, you know, what's the timeline for us? We're, we're actually pretty freaking quick. I think we do it in like two to four weeks, which I, I know like in a lot of people would be like two to four weeks, like for a response as a yes or no, that's kind of dumb. We like to do it as an affirmative yes or an affirmative no. And I think a lot of founders really appreciate this because what a lot of times other firms might do is kind of kind of drag them along and be like, hey, we're still checking it out. And it'll be like months, maybe, maybe three to six months later. And then the founder will send them, hey, you know, you know, we've been doing this, you know, it'd be great to get you to invest in this. And then either they get ghosted, right? And they thought they did everything right. Or the fact is that the VC is just so backed up on other stuff, they honestly forgot about the company which happens like maybe 10 to 15% of the time or the other 80, 85% of the time, they just haven't had time to get to actually analyzing the company. So yeah, it does. I definitely vibe with founders that get frustrated on the process because it, first of all, it's, it's hard to raise money. Like, you know, you gotta work your, your butt off to get cash, you know? And then second of all is, you know, you have a lot of people like, I think in VCs, it's one out of every 25 to 30 VCs you pitch will actually invest in you. So you got a lot and you're going to do that pitch a whole bunch. And I can understand how it gets so frustrating 
when you have people being flaky. So what we like to do is just give a hard yes or a hard no. That way we can let the people that reach out to us, we understand they got a life at the other day. They got to move on. If we say no, they got to move on to 30 other VCs. You know, we don't want to hold them up with a, yeah, I don't, I don't know kind of thing. So yeah, so two to four VCs are, are turnaround. Awesome. And I liked how you kind of want to circle back because you had mentioned something that really stuck out to me that you're more, you see the founders as more than just a check and more than just money that you're giving to them and that you really are basing on the relationship and their communication. But on your guys' end, you're offering more than money. You're offering the strategy, the resources, team, and just insights that you kind of were just speaking on. So I think that's very awesome. And I hear that you keep saying founder. So I just want to clarify when a health tech company is pitching for money, is it mainly just the founder that you're communicating with? Or is there like a, are you communicating with the, their entire team? Yeah. So in a lot of startups that are, especially health tech, that's like pre-seed, seed and series A, which is the first three rounds of funding that any med tech or health tech startup would get, they're normally like, tiny team. Normally you're directly corresponding with the CEO of the company or the COO or whatever title they get. So normally I think at the seed stage, it's only like three to six people. So there is enough, there's so few people that we can all be CC'd on the chain. And yeah, and we'll just communicate with them straight up and be like, especially on the founder interview, be like, hey, we like we liked your stuff. Let's schedule a call and, and go from there. And typically, yeah, we're pitched by by the founders themselves. And I think that's also one of the things that I think would be a total deal breaker for us is if the founder didn't pitch us because at the end of the day, it's like, you know, if somebody's going to sell you something, you want to make sure that the dude that, or dudette that's you know, selling it or giving it to you is the one that came up, you know, that has the expertise in the area. So yeah, it's typically the, 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 the found, the actual founder. And when I say founders for all the companies, I don't think there's been any company so far, yeah, that we've invested in that we didn't have direct contact with the founder because they're running the ship and we have to make sure we 100% vibe with them. Actually, 110%, like even with our spiritual energy. <laughs> makes sense, makes sense. And then you had mentioned how when there's the scientists, they may not have the healthcare experience. The healthcare professionals may not have the tech experience. Um, the businessmen may not have either tech or healthcare. And so it makes it a little challenging or having to fill in the knowledge gaps, like we said. When it comes to different founders, different companies, do you see yourself dealing with one of those three more often? And is there one of those three that you would prefer to work with? I think I'm not a suit and tie guy, so I generally don't like to chill out with the other, like the, the super business people. I like to hang out with who is the mad scientist that came up with this crazy idea or whatever. Um, I like to hang out with the, the founders um, themselves, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's part of my job to do both ends. I have to dabble on both ends simultaneously. And especially like if we go, if I go through a day, like like another Monday for me, like today is going through like 75 deals today where I went from everything from like computational genomics to pharmacology, to aerospace and defense, to artificial intelligence, to ML platforms. Like I have to constantly like change subject matter expertise. And then when we talk to their founders and portfolio companies, I have to like know my shizzle because they'll grill me, first of all. Like if I ask a stupid question, which I love, 
because I love being back in the corner where they'll be like, that was a dumb question, man. You're a fool. And I'll be like, I appreciate that. I am a fool because I should have read up on the stuff that you sent me. So yeah. So I think I like to interact with founders, but at the end of the day, each one of our investments has to has to have that science base. So when I do talk to scientific founders, I do have to like ask them for a quarterly update and be like, hey, how are we doing, especially in COVID right now? We want to make sure our companies have have runway, right? Which is the ability to operate without having to do another capital raise. And we're fortunate that a lot of our companies are A, not only working on vaccines and treatments for COVID, but also have runways of like 24 months, which is great because that means that they don't have to, they can really focus on the science stuff because we've got the business stuff covered for them. We know that they don't need to do a capital raise for two years. So that means they can just go full tilt on on the science stuff and really accelerating it without having to worry about, is there going to be enough cash in the bank for us? And our founders are business savvy too. I mean, especially since a lot of them come out of the Bay Area and, and Silicon Valley, like they know their stuff. Like you don't have to have an MBA. So they know exactly what their operating capacity is. And for us too, as VCs, we're biased towards experienced founders as well. That's also another key um, thing is that experienced founders, you know, that have had another startup or an entrepreneur that, that has exited before by a, you know, IPO or they sold their business. That makes our life easier because then we don't have to be like, this is what you got to do kind of thing. Yeah. For any of the companies where they're full-time, they know that. They know for sure. Like, what's our books? What's our burn rate? If, you know, if we only got 500K in the bank, but we're burning 250K a month, we only got two months before we die, you know? So we've got to make sure that stuff's uh, all good. So. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Good clarification. <laughs> and so one of the last questions I have before we kind of get to the last exercise is what sort of advice would you give to founders in the health tech field? I think the biggest thing is validate your tech as much as you can, especially in med tech, whether it's medical devices, biotherapeutics, tissue engineering, regenerative biology, you know, all that good stuff. Make sure that like when you come with an idea that you know that it, it's totally proprietary and you get the IP on that idea so that we don't have to deal with crazy stuff in the future when somebody says, no, this is my idea, like what happened to CRISPR-Cas9? Also, you know, make sure that, you know, you get your pitch, like your pitch deck, you know, your PowerPoint that goes over your company, nail that down. Because a lot of people don't realize that, like, we're not judging anybody. Like, so don't get, don't, don't get nervous. Like, you know, everybody gets nervous when you're doing anything. I mean, man, I I get nervous when I'm cleaning my room. So how am I not going to get nervous? I'm pitching a bunch of business people, right? Yeah, just get that, get that PowerPoint down, especially with the science founders, Keep the graphics simple just for everybody so that they aren't looking at like, I don't know, if you're running a double blind RCT, you aren't looking at like all these crazy regression graphs and people are like, this is like this is candy land for statisticians, but not for like laymen. Also, just just have have that grit, that fortitude where you're going to get rejected like anything in life. I mean, you're going to get rejected a lot. And I think a lot of founders have a tendency to be like, man, why doesn't nobody vibe with my idea? It's so, it's so kick ass. Like, this is a great idea. Why, why is nobody jumping on board? Just realize that a hundred percent of the time, the right investor is out there. You just didn't find them. That's the thing. Um, and I think in med tech, especially in health tech, it's a lot, a lot to do. If you have to go through FDA 510k clearance and you have to go through de novo routes and class two device uh, certifications, like 
you have to make sure that you get an investor that kind of knows that as well. So that the investor isn't like, I thought you guys were the next Facebook, like in three years later being like, why isn't this company worth a hundred million dollars or something dumb like that? They have to understand like, this is a complex technology and we're going to have, this is going to be our workflow and give that, give that roadmap. Tell the investor like year one, this is what we're going to do. We're going to get our, we're going to get our, our, you know, our product developed. We're going to get X amount of full-time employees. And then, you know, year two, if it's FDA compliant thing, or if it's HIPAA compliant, we're going to go through the process, make sure that we got that under wrap and provide as much information to the investor for them to feel comfortable. So that maybe if they aren't even uh, an investor that's in that space, like a family office or something like that, that doesn't even dabble in health tech stuff, right? Can understand, be like, okay, these guys have an idea because for us, you know, at the end of the day, we're looking, we're looking for that impact, but we also have to make sure that we can get those returns, right? We have to exit. So I think for any health tech founder, tell your investor just straight up. I know it's a total guesstimate when you're talking about exits and stuff like that, you know, and, and most of the time it's BS, but just, just give them a ballpark be like, Hey, you know, in my five years, we could probably get an acquisition from Johnson and Johnson or, you know, Pfizer or something like that. Be transparent because that lets your investor know that there's an end in sight where they're not just going to be invested and just kind of holding on and having no idea where, where things are going to go because venture capital at the end of the day, it's an alternative asset class. It's like mutual funds, you know, and stocks and stuff like that. VC is just where, you know, we do way cooler stuff and we're on the ground where instead of our investments being on a screen, they're in human form, which is kind of nuts. So, so yeah, I think for any, any type of health tech startup, just making sure that you're transparent on how you're going to operate the business, what the milestones are, what the money is being used for to make sure you got to tell people like, what am I going to do with this cash? And because anytime cash is sitting in liquidity, it's cash that's not working for you. And so it needs to be put to work. And then, you know, make sure that at the end of the day, you can say this product does X, Y, and Z. So this, you know, sleepwear device will be FDA cleared. And then it's going to be sold to this person for this amount. And then we're hoping to either grow to scale and just become a huge company, file an IPO or get an M&A, you know, merger and acquisition. So, so that way you have everything balled up into one. And then when you hustle, when you're slamming pitch decks and throwing them out to every single person you meet on LinkedIn or wherever, just be prepared for people to just, I mean, it's like Bumble or Tinder. They're going to ghost you, you know, it's a part of it. Don't take it personally. If like, especially on the diligence notes, like a lot of VCs, like we'll, we'll put notes on say like why we passed this. We'll say, uh, does not align with investment objectives, no MVP, no IP, blah, 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 all the acronyms. And then like, if when we tell that to somebody, obviously it comes out like a robot. And then we like, people will be like, oh, this person's an asshole. In reality, we're not, we're just being straight up because I think with startups, you need to be transparent be like, why does this suck? And how do you, can you fix it so that you don't fail? That's at the end of the day, we want you to be successful. We just want to make sure that you're de-risked so that we can invest in you. Awesome. Yeah, I like that. So like, even if it's not a good fit, you're still giving them some sort of actionable value that they can take just from that short, brief interaction with your company. Yeah, exactly. I think criticism feeds criticism, right? But constructive feedback always feeds constructive responses, right? Because then you know how to like suit up and be like, yeah, I can take this. I can take this, you know, I, I can deal with the rejection. I mean, 
I'm, I'm still like, I still freak out when I get rejected from anything, but like in entrepreneurship, it's constantly, you're just surrounded by failure. I think and it's a psychological thing. Like every, you know, nine out of 10 startups fail fact of life, but to be the one out of 10 that succeeds, you're the one that's just hustling, refusing to die. And there will be entrepreneurs that like, that will just send out emails. Yes. I mean, it does get a little irritating sometimes when you get like 50 emails from the same person, but that just shows us that like, man, this person, they're ride or die on this. You know, maybe we'll take a look at them, even if we said no. Awesome. So that's a lot of valuable insights, valuable information to digest. I guarantee people are going to have to listen to this maybe one or two times because it's so much value. (laughs) Um, But now we're coming up towards the end of the podcast episode, and I kind of want to end on a more lighter exercise with something I call the rapid fire round. So I'm going to just ask you a couple questions and then you just give me whatever answer you come up with. Okay. All right. All right. Question one, what is your favorite book of all time? It's called Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. Awesome. Who is the most influential person in your life or career? I would have to say Celestius Juma. He was a professor at Harvard who passed away. Okay. Awesome. Rest in peace to him. And then what is one goal you want to accomplish this year? Work on my roundhouse kick. Ah, okay. It's because, you know, I'm still trying to, I'm trying to bring in my inner Keanu Reeves with mental fortitude, but also my awesomeness and Taekwondo skills. Yeah. I read that. You're a black belt. Nice. And then last one, what is one piece of advice you would give to your 20 year old self? That was only eight years ago, luckily for me. So I, I can still remember that advice every day. I, I would say, <laughs> uh, I would say, don't stress out so much. It'll be all good. So, awesome, awesome. Well, anyways, that concludes today's episode. I want to thank you again, Chris, for just jumping on and just sharing your perspective of what you're doing in the health tech industry and the role you play in the Noya Fund and given a lot of actionable and valuable insights to other health tech founders and what they should be expecting when trying to raise money um, from other venture capitalists and um, just kind of process that you go through. And I know a lot of them will find this very valuable. So I just want to say thank you for jumping on. For sure, man. Thanks so much, Rodney, for having, having me on. Yeah. Hopefully I can tune in in the, in the future. We can uh, nerd out again. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, is there anything you want to end on? Any final words? Where can people find you or where can they look up uh, the Noya Fund? Yeah. So uh, find me. Uh, you can check out Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever, or just Google search my name. It's Krish, K-R-I-S-H, William Ramadurai. Search me up on Google. You should see all my links on there. Noya Fund. Yeah, just same thing. I wish I could be like, oh, there's this cool like app you can do or whatever. It's, it's just Google, man. Uh, so yeah, type in Noya, which is N-E-U-E and then fun. And yeah, check us out. We got to, we got to update our website, our websites, but, uh, but yeah, that's where you can find us. And yeah, feel free to, to shout out any time on LinkedIn or whatever. I'm always more than happy to do coffee, fireside chat, no fires, just, just on zoom, you know, there could be fires. I don't know. But, um, and, uh, yeah, yeah, that's the best way to get me. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you again, man. Like your personality, by the way. <laughs> Appreciate that, dude. And it's, it's awesome to be with like-minded individuals in the field. Alrighty. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Health Tech Hustle with Rodney Hu. 
founder of 209 Digital. Tune in next week for another interview with an expert leader in digital health.